Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and I spoke with magazine writer Sophie Elmhurst. We talked about her journey in, out and back into journalism, her move into long-form features and the freedoms of freelance journalism. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome Sophie to Always Take Notes. To start, could you tell us a little bit about your backstory, how you got into writing, what made you want to become a writer? Sure. Um, I guess I was definitely one of those people at university who had no idea um, what I was going to do um, and was also one of those people in my early 20s that sort of tried out about eight different careers, it felt like at the time. Um, I remember graduating and I was sort of simultaneously, I don't know, tutoring kids and uh, I would think I was an assistant to a writer for a bit, a job I found at the back of the LRB. Um, What had you studied at university? English, yeah. Um, And I had done a bit of like school journalism, like I think I worked on the sort of school paper, but I didn't do anything at university at all and um, had, yeah, very little intention to go into that world. Um, But one of the kind of multiple jobs I was doing simultaneously was an internship at Prospect Magazine, which was my kind of first job out of uni. Um, And that, well, that was an internship that became a very part-time job. So I was still doing all the other stuff at the same time. Um, And that led me, I guess, to becoming, to applying again. I did a lot of like looking up. It was like really showing my age because... It was back in the day when there was like a media section of The Guardian, which you would like leaf through on paper and like circle possible jobs. And I remember finding then an advert for a job as an editorial assistant at a uh, sort of new publication they were bringing out in The Guardian called Public Magazine, which I don't think lasted very long. Um, And I got that job. And uh, so that was the sort of like, yeah, the, the, the beginnings of it. But there was never... A plan, and yeah, as I say, like simultaneously to those early jobs, I was like applying for law school, thinking I was going to be a speech therapist, uh, audition for drama school. I mean, like you know, uh, did it, it was a it was a, it was a messy time, basically. And were those early jobs the kind of classic intern making tea? Yeah, stuff? definitely. I well, actually, no. I mean, I only, I, I guess I was just keen to earn early, so I was sort of doing a lot of jobs that were kind of. Uh, money jobs um and then the only internship I really did I think at post uni was um was for prospect which which I was lucky enough did sort of turn into a an actual kind of paid job and had you come from London originally yeah so again I was lucky um and I could live with my mum who was still living in London so that helped in terms of doing um an internship um but uh yeah so I did yeah I grew up in London and for your job at the publication at the Guardian. Yeah, what sort of things were you doing? Um, I, it was your kind of absolute like classic editorial assistant job, which was basically everything from like I remember like managing newsletters to uh, dealing with subscribers to uh, arranging stuff for other people or freelancers who are working on the magazine, like going through the whole production schedule. And then, but it was like a, my first chance to write a little bit in print so they I never did any writing when I was at Prospect that was just like a sort of very much a kind of fact-checking administrative role but um, yeah uh, I was given a chance to start doing some little interviews and some pieces um, and got a kind of taste for it I guess then although saying that shortly after that I had a kind of like total sort of moral question and decided journalism was a terrible idea and I went and worked for an NGO for four years so I like it's been like a really wayward journey to actually what I'm doing now. 
could you talk us through the ways of the way, as it were? I mean, so how we we invited you on for these because we read these amazing magazine pieces that you're you're known for now. But you know, your path from this this early uh, editorial assistant job through NGOs. Could you just talk us through? your journey <laughs> sure um oh god i wish i had I, I wish there was a sort of coherent narrative and even in retrospect it's really hard to attach a coherent narrative to it even though that would be neat neat and helpful but actually i was sort of thinking about this and thinking well maybe it's nice for people to know that there doesn't have to be a coherent narrative and that like you can years can pass in sort of professional chaos and uh, waywardness and actually it kind of can turn out okay in the end even though I would say you know like maybe that that waywardness is sort of something that's with you for life if you if you've had it for a while um yeah I mean the 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 switch from from working in magazines to to going to work for an NGO was just simply because I just had a sort of thought that I, it wasn't like I wasn't doing good in the world basically by working in magazines and I think you know I was 20 three or four at the time and maybe then um I had sort of more idealistic ideas about what one's function should or could be in the world so I went and worked for Save the Children and I was in their press office um and I uh I don't think I was a very good press officer and then I went I uh, worked in their sort of policy team doing kind of communication stuff and writing reports which I actually really loved because you actually got to go deep into stuff and um, talk to all the experts you know I was the sort of link person I guess for a while between these people who had spent years out in you know different countries and knew everything there was to know about um, malnutrition or like child protection or all sorts of things um, and so that I learned a huge amount and thought at that point after a, a while of doing that that I would go and do a master's I remember I, I got a place to do a master's I quit my job got a place to do a master's in global policy um global politics sorry at the LSE and then turned up on the first day and bought some textbooks and sat in a lecture and realized I understood sort of very little of what was going on and was tried to look at the textbooks and realized it was all entirely theoretical and was just like oh shoot no I I just I want to be a journalist again <laughs> like I'm not an academic this is so not me um and actually, the, there was a kind of key uh, moment which made me turn back to journalism, um, which was I entered, just as I was leaving Save the Children, I entered a competition. I don't know if they run it anymore. I haven't seen it advertised, but it was a competition run by The Guardian, actually, um, for sort of freelance young journalists or student journalists. I think they had two categories, young journalists and student journalists. And... It was in uh, collaboration with loads of um, NGOs and it was a sort of wonderful idea because basically what it offered to you as a young or aspiring journalist was a chance to go on a reporting trip to somewhere really far flung, um, hosted by an NGO, so taken there with them and given a kind of specific subject that they obviously wanted to have highlighted in The Guardian and your opportunity, you know, what you won was just the opportunity to do a, do that which is um was amazing it was amazing and i got to go to bangladesh and india and write about um i was with mary stopes so i was writing about like reproductive rights basically um in those countries and it was just i found it electrifying i guess just the sort of chance to be overseas and traveling and reporting and talking to people and having that sort of way into uh, an issue and a place and that kind of uh, cemented I guess the the idea of actually trying to do that long term. 
did you win the competition no no <laughs> no I well I mean I got the chance to go and then I think there was like a sort of final winner I remember going to a ceremony and yeah no I definitely wasn't the final winner but um, is this the, it's the international development journalism competition yes I did, I did it oh you did yeah, it all oh, right yeah, okay yeah. well you you know yeah I remember the, I remember the, the deal I went to Uganda it was yeah really interesting yeah of. I just think it, it just came for me at a really good time because I guess I'd sort of it perfectly straddled the two sort of worlds I guess in that you know, I was very familiar with that NGO world, but I'd always felt quite uncomfortable with my roles within it. And then traveling in, in in the capacity, you know, through the lens of being a journalist, I was like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. Like, this is the mode in which I'm comfortable, I guess. And, and then after that, what, how did your, your rise to power continue? <laughs> my rise to power. Uh, that was I... Simon's favorite phrase. <laughs> <laughs> uh, along with, how much are you paid? <laughs> um... I, so, well, I, well, it was, I mean, it was very much not a rise to power because shortly after that, I quit this, this master's and once again had absolutely no idea what I was doing um, with my life. And so then just found myself essentially unemployed. So I had to kind of start um, again. I, I think this was, you know, it's one of those things where adversity teaches you a lot. Um, I had to move back in with my mum for a bit and I had to... Uh, write a lot of letters and emails and just started like getting in touch with lots and lots of people and applying to anything I could. I remember getting down to the last two for a job at Chatham House for their, it was like an assistant editor job for a publication they had and I didn't get it and just thinking, okay, well, I'm really like, I'm really screwed now. And then uh, the, I guess, next key thing, which um, I am forever grateful for was uh and I did get a few replies from editors, to be fair to them. But um, the only person who was like, oh, come and meet me, um, was Jason Cowley, who's the editor of the New Statesman. And I went to meet him and pitched him some ideas. And he took one and published it. And that was felt like a massive deal at the time for me. Um, and he then was like, oh, look, there's a couple of jobs opening up. You should apply. And they were like graduate trainee jobs and by that stage, I think I was like 27. And so it was like, okay, yeah, well, they'll go for the graduate training job because I haven't got many options right now. And I got it. And um, yeah, I ended up being there for sort of five years until I, four or five years until I went freelance when I had my first kid. So when you joined as a trainee, was, was that mostly writing? Or was that a mix of stuff? No, I mean, I think I like boldly went in thinking, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll turn this into mostly writing. But no, I had like, uh, absolutely not. Like I, they, from day one, I think he was um, always giving me opportunities to write and that was fantastic. But no, it was a job. And like, it was very much, um, yeah, working on the magazine. It was a small staff. It was uh, working on all aspects. It was editing, commissioning, um, and I sort of gradually like did more and more. I sort of ended up being the features editor. I mean, it was a very small team, so this wasn't a kind of like rising through many, many ranks. But um, yeah, it was very much an editorial job. Um, it's like, you know, a weekly magazine so with a small staff. So it's um, quite an intense workflow. Sorry. Um, I was going to say all hands on deck. Oh, right. <laughs> I didn't Sorry. have the microphone, so I did <laughs> gesturing. Um, yeah, uh, I've lost my flow. Um, yes, the, the New Statesman, I mean, that's also where I first wrote magazine pieces right, right. for. Um, and I think a lot of people, it provided that yeah, kind totally. of first window on. We've had, we had um, Helen Lewis on the show as well yes. when, she was, when she was deputy editor. Um, I think the, the 
I think if I was summarizing kind of where that's at in my experience and maybe for other people it's like fantastic place in that it gives you know young people this opportunity to to write at length and, and scale um, and has this huge kind of literary heritage but that it didn't it doesn't have the resources you know to to kind of pay people very much for this kind of thing and, and to fund travel and stuff like that so mm. it's kind of fantastically useful stepping stone but, mm. but kind of one, wanted to move through it how did you if you feel is that fair do you think from from being, having been on the inside of it um yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. I guess I have, yeah, sort of different. Uh, when, when I feel like I was on the inside of it, I was in, on the inside of it as an editor and as a commissioner. So I was at that point, you know, I was really dealing with lots of writers. And um, yeah, God, there's no doubt we weren't able to pay people as much as other places. And there were sort of restrictions on that. But at the same time, um, and I think they still do this. I think what we were able to do was give a space for like really great writers to maybe write things they wouldn't otherwise find homes for and and to write original and quite essayistic pieces and and write at length and yeah those big kind of you know it's hard, it's hard to find anywhere in a way that that can fund the kind of big reported travel based sort of pieces but um and yeah they definitely weren't and i presume still aren't in in a position to do that but but yeah i feel like they just have a kind of a breadth and an open-mindedness to what they will publish and are interested in publishing which I always found I was always I suppose what I'm trying to say is I was always surprised by the um and delighted by the kind of caliber of writers I could ask like Rachel Cusk I remember wrote a couple of pieces for me while I was there and um I don't know all sorts of people Rowan Williams you know all these amazing writers basically and thinkers who would just regularly pitch up and write a piece in the New Statesman um, and I think that was often because it, there was a sense that they could write something there that, you know, would maybe not find a home elsewhere. How did you find being on the editing and commissioning side of things? Yeah, I mean, again, I don't think it was my sort of <laughs> natural home in a way. Like, I'm really, really glad I did it. I think it's an amazing um, sort of training as a writer um, to be an editor. Um, lot, I mean, some rare and brilliant people can do both equally well. Um I think I'm a better writer than I am an editor and um but it taught me a huge amount it taught me about I, I think it's made me less precious a writer um I think it's made me really sympathetic to the position editors there's are a in. kind of value in being on the other side of the fence definitely. right having seen that. yeah definitely um I also think there's a real value again like going back to the kind of wayward career thing of having as a writer and a reporter now where you're always sort of on the outside of stuff is like having been inside buildings like having mm. been on the inside of institutions having been on the inside of meetings that like or discussions or the kind or events where you know journalists wouldn't be allowed in because all sorts of stuff's going down or whatever you know there's there's that sense of like an, an a knowledge of and an, a kind of ex, experiential knowledge of being on the inside which i think is actually really valuable once you're forever on the outside as a reporter and with you know the work that you you do now is, is very reported it's kind of based yeah. you know, based very much on that when you were in in the statesman how much did you feel that the, the politics of the place was kind of shaping the stuff you were commissioning or how how did that how was that line walked yeah i mean i guess not really by me and that i just am not and was not like driven by a sort of political um fervor I guess and other people you know there were plenty of other people who really did that and were more engaged in that and I think I was always more on the kind of cultural sort of I'd worked on the back half for a while as um 
um, the deputy to Jonathan Derbyshire, who was the culture editor at, at the time. And then when I was doing features, it was very much like other people would commission the sort of heavy politics stuff. And I was very much like hoping and trying to bring in the kind of weird esoteric kind of, I don't know, more literary writing, I suppose. Um, so I think I avoided it, <laughs> essentially. And I think I still slightly do, which probably sounds um, cowardly, but um, I guess I'm just more interested in uh, other, th I'm interested in how politics creeps into things and creeps into everything. And I don't, uh, I don't avoid it as a subject, I think, but it's never like the main motivating subject. I guess. So when did you leave the New Statesman? Uh, I left uh, when I was like nine months pregnant with my first baby um, when I was going on maternity leave. So that was 2013. Okay, yeah. so... Um, and I've been freelance since then. You've yeah. done the mantelpiece then while you were at the... Yeah, so I did get to do some, some writing, um, some like, you know, more long form. And by really the first, uh, my first attempt at anything approaching kind of long form um, while I was there. But, but mostly in my... Uh, almost always in my own time so the the deal kind of was that you could write and you get you could get given space but you had to find your own time to do it like it couldn't interfere with your job can you take us through the the process of that mantelpiece which i think is really good i was really struck by it um you know from the gestation of the idea to the negotiation with access then then the reporting you know how did you kind of feel your way if this was sort of the, one of the first big pieces you did how did you how did you go about doing it um yeah, I think it was sort of chancy, really, in that I, for a while, I'd done a few sort of, uh, I knew I wanted to start writing l longer pieces and, and long form, and I was like a fan of long form, you know, back when it was sort of, I guess, less of an established thing, um, at least in this country, and um, I knew I wanted to try my hand, and I felt like, given the restrictions on traveling and reporting all the thing, that Profiles was the obvious, like, way to to do that because we were interviewing people all the time for the magazine and I sort of thought with a bit of like stretching of the access you could probably get enough material to do a proper profile I'd done a couple um but they were kind of sort of falling a bit short I think and then with her I did uh you know what happens all the time in these sort of publicity schedules or whatever you know I had a hour-long interview schedule with her in a London hotel which I did and obviously any conversation that Hillary Mantel has with anyone is a brilliant conversation but I came away from the conversation thinking oh my god there's just so much more there and so much of a story to tell and it felt like such a moment that was approaching as we it was sort of timed I think around the approach of the um second Booker Prize which she ended up winning and that was sort of a, like a sort of historical moment in itself so that, that was, you know timing of these things is always really key and I just thought well it's worth trying so I just emailed her I don't know how I got her email uh Maybe we just had it at the magazine. I emailed her just saying, look, I really love talking to you and can I come and see you in Devon? And she said yes. Um, and so, I mean, in a way, if I look back on it now, it feels... And then obviously I did like other interviews and reporting. I mean, reporting, I did other interviews around that. I went to meet her agent. I you know, spoke to her editor at the LLB. I, um, you know, had, had a bunch of conversations. When I think about it now, like the reporting was pretty light it was like one lunchtime sort of encounter style interview and one day trip to Devon and a bunch of other conversations but I guess what doing that piece taught me was that you could you know sometimes the challenge is like trying to make something out of not necessarily like that much or at least with just what you've got or what you can get and that's what I got and so um I guess that was like my first attempt to sort of try and 
structurally and stylistically do something a little bit bolder than just a kind of straight written through interview um yeah and did you because the piece is quite literary in itself was that something you wanted to do from the beginning because she's obviously a a writer of literature etc I guess so I guess so I sort of have this weird I don't know I've never really articulated this before and this might sound just either really pretentious or just wrong but I have some kind of faith in the idea or theory that pieces often end up even if it's not the intention sort of in some way reflecting or being on the same terms as their subject so or maybe there's just like a sort of an Triloquism thing where you kind of end up like a slightly like mimicking the kind of tone like when, when of you the talk subject. back to the the tampon chatbot. <laughs> yeah, I guess I don't. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just. But like, we'll come to that. In due course. We'll come back to yeah. We'll come back to the chatbot. Um, I don't know. I don't know quite what I'm trying to say, but I think it's like uh, I do really like writing in really different styles and tones. I like writing seriously. I like writing very unseriously. Um, and I'm drawn to really, really different kind of subjects. But, and with her, it just sort of, um, yeah, maybe it was some sort of deference to, or like just, you know, lame fangirl mimicry of a kind of literary style, but uh, I sort of felt right for her, I guess. I also thought what you were saying about, you know, you, you said you think in retrospect the reporting was relatively light, but just that kind of conceptual difference from, as you say, doing the sit down in a hotel room mm. with someone to actually saying, I want access within your place, I want to talk to other people. You know, I think particularly in this country, that's quite a big conceptual leap, right? I mean, we, it's interesting, we interviewed Giles Hadsley at Vogue mm. about this, and we were saying, um, you know, do you do that? Do you, you'll write like a the Vogue cover, but it'll be entirely based just on a, mm. on a sit down, or you, you attempted to make that, and he didn't. And, I, I think, you know, that that adds a tremendous amount of richness, even if it's only two other phone calls or something, because suddenly you have the view in the round. But what was there a kind of, hey, were you reading things while you were seeing this, or what was prompting you to, to stretch your legs a bit in that direction? Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely always, like, reading a ton of stuff and, you know, reading all the obvious stuff, I guess, and, and um, you know, you read a New Yorker profile and it's like, oh, okay, so it's like... It's, you know, it, it's a theory of a person. Actually, I think that's J J Jonathan Shane, and I know you've had on as well. Like his, um, I always remember him saying to me that his like sense of what a profile was, a good profile was like you have like a theory of a person. And um, so I'm stealing that from him. But you know, it is it like it should be so much more. And 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 I think I don't know a lot of it. A lot of all this, I think, is confidence. You know, you can. And it took me a really, really long time to to get any to get that, <laughs> like to, to to have the confidence to sort of write in a way that you could I guess slightly perform that trick or like you know do that conversion from something which in its bare bones could could have still been quite limited but um you know it, it, I suppose it's that sort of idea that you back yourself to kind of write in your own voice a bit more and to sort of state things and to have a theory you know which I think um uh yeah, it took me a long time to have the kind of guts, I guess, to even try and do that. I mean, something I found when writing profiles is like the concern that I would not find anything inter interesting to say about that person or find anything or new, new to say. right, yeah. Was that something with Hilary Mantel about, about which a, a huge amount has been written? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I'm, God, I don't know if I achieved that. I mean, I, you know, she, she just she's like an interview machine that woman I mean anything you anytime you read anything with her she just comes out with gold and so in a way you know like someone like that makes makes your job easier but it's definitely yeah I know exactly what you mean and 
um, I don't know. I guess, I guess, I again, I have some sort of weird faith in the moment of an interview that you, if you go on long enough and if you're just bold enough, you can try and get to places uh, just a bit beyond maybe where they've been before. And, and I, I'm, that sounds like I'm a really kind of like swashbuckling interview. I'm not at all. Um, but, uh, so bold isn't the right word, but it's, it's more about like, like pushing a conversation to its limits, I suppose. And I, I guess there's like just having the sort of, uh, I don't know, perseverance or just the time <laughs> to do that. Um, what was the edit process like for that? Because you were the features editor. <laughs> yeah, obviously I wasn't just like, well, this is perfect. Um, um, no, I, obviously I didn't edit it. So um, I think Helen Helen was by then um, the deputy editor, I think, or at least, an ed- yeah, I, I can't remember. But she edited it and Jason edited it. Um, and yeah, so they, they both looked at it. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about your interview process? Do you plan extensively what you're going to ask beforehand is it a mix of knowing what you want to ask and then doing some of it on the fly is it all on the fly yeah it's interesting I feel like this has um uh, changed my answer to this has changed over the years in that I think I used to plan a lot more and now I do it a lot more on the fly that's the sort of short answer I guess and on the fly is slightly I guess slightly misrepresentative and obviously I prep and do the reading and do a lot of research but I think I, I suppose, have more faith or confidence again in the idea that I can kind of steer a conversation, you know, in a way that um, is going to be sort of advantageous to the piece. But also that the best conversations often come not from a plan, but from you actually just like listening in the moment to what someone's saying and responding to what they're saying. Um, that sounds really, really obvious. But I think for quite a long time or in early years, it's, you know, doing it, I was definitely like quite wedded to questions or wedded to that sort of sense of like, I oh, got have I covered everything? Um, and getting away from that and also realizing that you can, I sort of always end every interview being like, oh, uh, it's okay if I come back to you, right? Like when I'm writing this up or, you know, and, and it never just being one conversation, ideally it being two or three or four or however many. Um, so, yeah, I suppose I feel like now it is, it's more organic and that um, seems to work. So I was going to ask as well with the um, Alexa piece for 1843. Oh, yeah. Where you had to inhabit someone's kind of voice. Yeah. How many interviews did you do for that? How much time did you spend with your with your subject? Yeah, a lot, a lot. Um, yeah, that uh, <laughs> was fun. Um, she was a real trooper and really let me sort of tag along for a while. So I guess it would be like hours at a time where we just hang out in her flat or... Um, Were you at that party where the people smoke on the balcony? Yeah, 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 of course, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, so going to a birthday party at her flat, hanging out with her friends, with her boyfriend, um, going to another, yeah, another party I went to with her. But you weren't in Dorset, were you in Dorset? I was not in Dorset. No, I was not in Dorset. I, that was, my reporting of Dorset was purely based on her social media content. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, God, that was just, I don't know, so much of that was, is like that kind of process where you really do need the emotion is just getting lucky with a subject and that you know it took me a while to find I mean god I have real memories of like basically my it wasn't it was the magazine's idea and they wanted like a profile of a millennial and 
I remember some. We should just, say this is a bit later. This yes. is Pope well well past your. Yes. Your Sorry, this is like so. a couple of years ago, I guess. Um, now, yeah. So it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, but they asked me to do this, and I remember just biking around London fields, like accosting people that looked sort of vaguely in the age bracket, or kind of like they represented some of the stereotypes I had in my mind of what a millennial was. And just sort of asking them anyway, that was sort of the low point of the reporting process. And then I eventually kind of just found someone who was up for it and then wasn't up for it, but recommended me someone else who they thought would be really up for it and really So good. they weren't like a relative of an editor at the magazine? Or no, God, no, 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 no. They were totally, um, no. I, yeah, it was a sort of connection of a connection of a connection of someone I just found on the internet, basically. So, um, yeah, it was that. I mean, that's, I feel like it's, it's maybe the side of things which is uh, not sort of spoken about enough is like that the writing is such a sort of fractional part of this whole process and that you just spend like 90% of your time desperately trying to get stuff off the ground and like find subjects and make them talk to you and get access to places or people and you know people obviously do talk about this but like it's worth emphasizing that that is like a lot of the job this episode of always take notes is supported by clean prose london's first co-working space designed specifically for writers Based over three storeys in Shoreditch, in the east of the city, Clean Prose's mission is to provide writers of all stripes, from novelists to playwrights, with a space and a community designed especially for them. To foster strong connections, Clean Prose offers a professional network that many writers miss when they work alone at home, at a library, or in a noisy cafe. The ground floor is an event space, offering workshops, talks from experts, and book launches. The first floor is an open-plan common room, it is a space for writers to connect, collaborate, drink coffee and develop their professional networks within the publishing, TV, film and other creative industries. The second floor is a totally quiet space in which to concentrate and write, with private desks, lockers and an extensive book collection. To find out more, go to cleanprose.co.uk. Always take notes, listeners, are eligible for a five-day pass to Cleanprose. To redeem this offer, please email write at cleanprose.co.uk with the subject line ATN hyphen welcome five. Do you have any particular tips or tricks for getting people to open up to you or speak to you? Uh, I find that like real open and frank honesty really helps <laughs> and works. I think I used to be really cautious and used to be really like worried about like my sort of almost like my moral status as a journalist and like feeling like, oh God, they must just think I'm awful and like I'm, you know, and it's, I don't know, sort of caveating everything or being worried about, you know, how people would respond. And now I'm just really, I don't know, sort of lay it all quite bare, I guess. And I think... I think there's a lot to be said for that. I just think like, so. you know, be very upfront. Like, I think so. Explain how things work. Yeah. I was wondering, could you just talk before we get into the nitty gritty on these more recent pieces of how, you know, you, this the, your freelance journey kind of. Yeah, sure. Journey, we, should not, we shouldn't call it a journey. <laughs> freelance career. Uh, you know, how, how did that develop uh, in the time that you'd. And, and you, you went freelance because you were having a baby? Or what, how did those two things interface? Mm, yeah, good question. I think I'd wanted to go freelance for ages and never had the guts mm, for lots of reasons because uh, it's a scary thing to do and um basically I, it was almost like having a baby was my disguise for going <laughs> freelance or like I could, that was my kind of way I could like slip out of the building unnoticed and not go back and um at the same time like and 
I want to make this point like that it became really clear to me early on in motherhood I guess that I didn't want to go back to a full-time office job and I obviously do not judge anyone that runs back to an office job as quickly as they can after having a baby but for whatever reason I just sort of thought you know what I kind of if there's a if I can like forge a career you know I didn't want to stop working for a second but if I can forge a career that means I can be around a bit more and at home a bit more than I'd like to so that was like what was very incentivizing as well as being a kind of good disguise um so I I mean it, what it also meant was that I got going really early and that I remember when my first kid was six weeks old I went to interview Kira Knightley in a stately home with my mum in tow and was sort of like breastfeeding either side of the interview and actually Kira Knightley was really down with it and really cool about it so um it was she was a good person but like did you like for such a sort of weird experiment um but uh and actually I've had a few things like that now over the years where like the kids of I don't know one or other is had to come along or like I've been doing phono interviews like while taking someone to swimming or you know that kind of thing it just um in a way the the, the I mean there's an absurdity to it but there's also like an absolute gift and great fortune to it which is that I think being a freelance journalist is one of the you know one of the things you can do while having kids and it's hard at times like really hard practically but but it's also is possible and there are a lot of jobs that you know it's a bit more all or nothing you can't like have that kind of middle ground and um so I feel very grateful for that in lots of ways. Um, yes. Do you work mostly from home itself? Do you have somewhere in your house where you work? Uh, yeah, now more so. I used to, uh, so my husband and I both do the same job. Um, we're both freelance journalists and for many years we were just like your classic roving cafe stroke library freelancers. Um, and then whoever we could corral to like look after one of our kids was at home with the kid. So one of our parents or... For a little while, we had a kind of childminder. Um, but now they are at school and at nursery, there were two of them. And so the home has been slightly reclaimed, which is good. Um, yeah, it sort of feels like a kind of maturing of the freelance life somehow. And how does your your work now in terms of how many clients you have and how many pieces you have ongoing at one stage and how much of your work are you pitching and how much is editors coming to you the, the kind of real the, the mechanics of it yeah sure um so for the last couple of years I've been on contract at the Guardian so I'm um on the for the long read desk so I started writing for them when uh, that was another kind of really happy moment in my career in my journey um which was when Jonathan Janin turned up in London and um got in touch and he'd read the Hilary Mantel piece and that was the only reason he got in touch with me like I think that was the only piece he'd read um and was like do you want to you know setting up this thing called the long read do you want to um write for it and I was like yes please um and so I started writing with them then and then went on contract with them so I do three pieces a year for them um or at least that's yeah that's what I'm contracted to do and then I also write for um 1843 magazine which is the economist sort of bi-monthly lifestyle kind of magazine that also publishes long form and what I have definitely known from the beginning is that you cannot live by long form alone and so um sadly so I also write for various sort of glossy magazines do celebrity interviews which are much uh quicker to turn around and so kind of pay the bills while you're kind of working on the longer stuff which um do pay the bills but more slowly i guess so how many pieces would you be kind of typically juggling at once would you, and also how do you organize that is that spreadsheets 
No, God, I mean, there should be, shouldn't there? No, clearly I don't have a spreadsheet. Oh. Um, I wish I had a good answer to that. Um, and I, I should have a good answer to that. I'm going to go home and make, like, develop a good answer to that because I basically always have a at least one or two, I guess, long reads or long form pieces on the go. And then we'll also simultaneously try and have other quicker stuff on the go. Um or at least they'll, or there'll be kind of dips when I'll sort of suddenly take on loads of work, you know, and uh, to sort of like, almost like as a kind of down payment for the time I know I'm going to be spending on a, on a long read. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a slightly chaotic juggle. I don't have a system. Um, Is it all British or are you writing for Americans? As well? I've done a little bit for the Americans. Um, uh, I, I did a piece, I did a profile for the New York Times magazine at Philip Pullman a little while back. I've done little bits oh i did I, I did something for the new yorker website um i'd love to do for the more for the americans it's sort of and like there are conversations there are ongoing conversations let's put it like that but um i feel like at the moment i yeah i guess being on contract and uh with the guardian that sort of dominates a lot of my time because i have a sort of sense of commitment there i guess that needs to be fulfilled so i don't have a huge amount of capacity but you know who knows if it, yeah. And you do three long form pieces for The Guardian a year. Does yes. it take the full four months? I know. I mean, one? that sounds insane, doesn't it? Like, no, no. And obviously I have to do a ton of other work, you know, around the sides of that. So it's not like I'm spending four, four months on them. But it is amazing how long these things take. And I think I do find myself trying to explain, you know, people will ask me, like, it takes you so how long? And like the sort of note of disbelief when, you know, they're just reading a kind of 5,000 word article about Tampax. It's like, how is it? possible and it took you that long but they just really do take a long time and I, a lot of that again is the sort of negotiating negotiation of access the um process of setting up and um a lot of that is just interviewing then once you've got in there and reporting and the sort of smallest part of that is the writing as I said it's like that's that's really the kind of happy coda to the whole process it's a rule of the show that we always ask about money. Um, now, so as much or as little as you're you're comfortable with. But in terms of how you, know, how does money interface with your writing life? How does it interface with my writing life? And that, I mean, I get paid, but I uh, I wish I was paid more. But Could we uh, with with the, this contract you have yes. being being in a contracted position yes, for the long okay, read? Yes. Does that and you you, know, you don't have to go into specifics if you don't want to? But does that mean that your your rate per piece is comparable to if you're doing it on a freelance basis or is it higher or is it lower? Uh, I think it's just comparable. Um, so, yeah, I get paid, I guess, across the board uh, uh, with everyone I sort of write for between, say, 50p a word and a pound a word and uh, the American publications pay more, um, which is amazing. Um, but, yeah, so that's the sort of ballpark, I guess. Do you ever haggle your fee? Try and negotiate it. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I yeah I have done that a couple of times, um, and but not as probably as often as I should. Uh, I don't know. It's really tricky. Um, I feel like I should be saying yes. You know, we should be sort of fighting for that all the time, but. Uh, I, yeah, probably I need to be a bit braver on that. On that. Do point. you have an agent, or are you handling all of these negotiations directly yourself? Yeah, I don't have an agent at the moment. I'm. I've sort of talked to a lot of agents over the years, and sort of always come away with the same thought of like, ah, oh, when I've got an idea for a book, I'll like 
you know, I'll, I'll come back to you kind of thing because I sort of definitely don't feel like you need an agent for journalism. Um, and I feel like if you, I, 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 for, I guess, I don't know what reasons, but haven't ever kind of, have just been really enjoying what I've been doing. And I've had little kids, so I haven't had a huge amount of time to sort of think about books. But I sort of feel like I'm just getting to a point now where I think, okay, uh, I could maybe imagine kind of going deeper into something um, and, and working on something for for a long time. But I'm just really conscious, you know, I've got a lot of friends who have written nonfiction books and I know the sort of toll it takes and the amount of work it is and you really, really have to know you want to do it, I think. And you really, you know, and I'd want to do it well. So, uh, yeah, I've sort of held off on that whole process until I really kind of feel like I've got something um, I have faith in. Fair enough. <laughs> um, to talk about the Tampax long read that you yes. have for Guardian, to also put the chatbot comment earlier into some context, um, <laughs> you talked about the kind of up-and-coming brands trying to take Tampax's crown. Was that your idea um, originally? Yeah, Tampax was my idea, actually. Um, why did I want to do it? I think, the, the, so the long read has this thing, they kind of like every now and then doing kind of brand pieces. You know, this thing that's in your cupboard or like everyone, the supermarket that everyone goes to or the, I don't know, all the, all, you know, the, the beer that everyone drinks and to kind of unpick it and unravel it and just tell the story of it a bit. And... Um, I guess I was probably just like hunting around for ideas and opened my bathroom cup and I was like, mm, Tampax, that would be good. And having no idea actually at the time when I pitched it uh, that there was this kind of, I just thought Tampax would be a good thing to write about and um, didn't really, wasn't aware of this kind of surge in new tampon brands, which then obviously became um, part of the story or the, the main part of the story in a way. Um, so I don't know, I always find that, I, I, I often have the same recurring thought process when I'm doing a piece like, oh, that was lucky. Like that was lucky that that came out being like that. But it, I sort of feel like it's more that the lesson is that when you go deep enough into anything, you find a story and you find something really interesting that you become, I've become obsessed with for, you know, three months or whatever. And um, you can kind of turn a lot of things into, into good stories, I think, if you pay enough attention to them, I suppose. Just on the money piece, is the last question we'll ask on this, but um, so back to it slightly. Just, yeah. you, you touched on, you know, the big discrepancy between American and British publications. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a number of people do this kind of work who I've spoken to will say they regard, for it to be sustainable financially, you know, that needs to be where you're working. You need to be writing in yeah. those places. And that British work is, you know, is really valuable and useful, but it's a kind of stepping stone to moving in that direction. Mm. Do you do you seem, do you, you seem to have a sort of somewhat different approach to it that you're kind of this is the market you want to be operating in or or is it just the way it's tended to work out um it's a really good question uh i think you know part of the way it's gone for me is just it's just sort of yes the sort of practical effects of of like you know having a contract and and fulfilling that and also i suppose a, a um a decision not to be like that purist about my journalism and that i don't mind doing um like quicker turnaround sort of celebrity profiles I actually find them really fun and really interesting because it gives you I mean they're brilliant for ideas because you find yourself thrust into mad worlds and fashion shoots and all this sort of things um that you otherwise you know w wouldn't encounter um and yeah I enjoy I enjoy doing them and that sort of for me like is the kind of as I said before like sort of is the thing that financially sustains the the sort of British long form um uh yeah sort of career but but also I'm like a real and clearly this could happen you know in America but like I am a real believer in the most important part 
of this whole game just being your relationship with your editors and I'm very very lucky and I have really brilliant editors um in the form of David Wolf at The Guardian and Jonathan Beckman at The Economist and I just I don't know I feel like that's they're sort of worth their weight in gold in the sense of having people that have confidence in you and they've given me a lot of confidence um you know I think when I started writing full-time you know freelancing I, it took me a while to build up that confidence and and to sort of really think I could do this and do this as a, as a career and um there's I don't know it's like you can't kind of quantify the value of a, a sort of close and like trusting relationship with an editor and I guess that goes back to my earlier point about like having been an editor and, and knowing how hard it is and you know when you find a good one you just sort of I tend to, I don't know I want to hold on um and I also feel like the right my writing gets better and better the longer I write for someone and um you get given more and more freedom as well and um and more freedom both in the ideas you you, you do and, and the way in which you can write them um and I don't know I guess that all just counts for a lot for me I guess also you understand what they're looking for a bit more the more you write. yeah definitely and I think they bring you yeah that's it just becomes a really interesting and like fruitful conversation and it's really enjoyable you know it's like it becomes something much more than that kind of slightly remote sort of well, pitching ideas and you know trying to hear waiting to hear back and then getting edits back you know everything being done on email which I guess is more the case when you're if it's someone far away like I like being able to go and meet my editors face to face I like talking to them um uh, yeah and so I, I th those things just really sort of matter to me I guess how much do you discuss the kind of structure of a piece before you go away and write it with your editor? Um, I, it's a good question. I think I often will like, yeah, no, we'll, 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 I mean, it depends whose idea it is in the first place that that kind of goes back and forth. Um, but we'll often like, actually, whichever way it goes, I will send an outline. Um, but before you've done the reporting or after the reporting? no 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 before so, okay yeah so an outline of how i kind of see it working out i mean how as much... in a pitch or after the thing's been commissioned or is this much, much more of like a dialogue you're having with the yeah the exactly yeah. i guess so um if it's my idea i i do i do need to kind of yeah i will write out a pitch yeah. um still but like it's um, if it's been their idea, I'll kind of go away, think about it, do some research, come up, write an outline, and then um, how much resemblance that outline bears to the final product is really anyone's guess, though, to be honest. Because, and I often say this to me, I'm like, oh, don't, like, here's a pitch, but, like, trust me. <laughs> and then, like, it's really understandable why they don't always trust me, but I, at the same time, I sort of feel like, I know I can do it. You know, it's, it's that sort of feeling. It's like, I know this has got something in there, and it's sort of hard always to get that in a pitch form. Um, as we come to the end of the episode almost I want to talk about the third piece you sent us about domestic violence oh yeah um, and the case of a woman who had um, killed her partner yeah um, how did you go about doing that piece how much access did you get to people and were they kind of queasy about hmm. having a reporter writer or were they glad to have someone bring mm. um, attention to the case yeah that was such an interesting one and such a different challenge because um, I never met her and couldn't meet her. She's in prison. Um, so I was going, the, all the reporting for that was done on three massive like ring binders of documents that I was allowed to access to by 
her lawyers and um, was going to Liverpool, her hometown, and meeting her family and talking to her family a lot. Um, but what felt really important to me was trying to almost get in her head as much as I could, even though I wasn't meeting her. And that was kind of just sort of intellectually and emotionally like a really challenging exercise. Um, and I often sort of wondered whether I was, you know, like ethically, whether, whether that was sort of okay, except that obviously her family were, you know, in answer to your, kind of that part of your question, were absolutely engaged and on board and sharing letters and photos. And, you know, so there was a sort of puzzle effect, I guess, going on of just piecing together all these, you know, different things and people and the kind of emotions that they were feeling and the narrative, you know, the stories that her friends could tell me about events and things they'd witnessed and seen and about what she was like, is like. Um, and so, and eventually kind of, yeah, I guess sort of building up a, a sense of her in that way and of her story. Um, but it was, a, yeah, a very, very different, different from anything I'd ever done um, before in terms of, you know, not having access to your principal subject, basically. And in terms of your your process, I'm really fascinated by this with writers, but do you aim, when you're filing, do you aim to file like a clean draft that is ideally the end product? Or are you, do you file an outline? Like, what is your, your process with um, that? And how, how is it, how does it work with the editor? I, yeah, I definitely, I would say, file as clean and as finished a thing as I can. But crucially, actually, I guess, not getting it to a point where, if anyone messes with it, I'd freak out <laughs> because that's psychologically a really bad place to get to with a piece, I think, because then you just, you're going to get edited and I love being edited and I'm open to it and have always, always benefited from it, um, you know, from good editing. So, um, uh, yeah, but but at the same time, I definitely want to kind of give it my best shot, I guess. So uh, I do a lot of like printouts, you know, I, I read it through, I read it through. Is that even now where you're, you're very established, you've got really good relationships with your editor, you still want to kind of get it pretty polished before you yeah. show? Yeah, okay. definitely. Um, yeah, and I still am incapable of filing a piece without like sending a kind of covering caveat laden email of being like, ah, this is just, mm, I'm still not sure about this bit or that, you know, and, um, but I even, yeah, I really, yeah, I do really try. But you um, get to the point that you're, you feel like you've reached I sort of get to, yeah, I get to the point where the there aren't kind of any notes on the printout anymore. <laughs> and but that any, strikes like, me as, annotations as and tactically <laughs> quite a clever approach because you're you're trying, you're, yeah, you're sending something that's quite clean, but you're also in your covering note indicating you're open to change it. Right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I never that, think that, of it that's tactical. You're, you're, you're like... running an elaborate parallel game. <laughs> yeah, I wish, God, I wish I could like uh, credit myself with such like bluffing and double bluffing. In fact, it's just like, a sort of really English kind of inability to do anything without like simultaneously apologizing for it I think but um yeah I think also I mean I definitely feel that as like kind of female yeah I, I you know I that was in my head and I was like I'm not I gonna say yeah, it don't say it but I'm I, like the same I'm always like you know it's just like it's not right I, can't I know put my finger on it I know and tell me it's crap I'm sorry <laughs> I know I know exactly if like if I get in there first with the self-criticism then it's sort yeah. of like it's like a defensive thing isn't it so that they can't do it for me and I know I think I and I I think you're probably right and that drives me crazy because I just I don't know if there's one thing I've learned over all these years it's like you know it takes a while to like build up you know well, it took me a while to sort of build up the confidence to kind of write in the way that I, I sort of wanted to write and to have like the faith to in myself to do that and it definitely took the faith of other people to, to you know in me to, to do it but um 
I don't know, it's something I remember Hilary Mantel actually weirdly full circle back to her saying to like young, you know, her advice always to young writers. It's Be like, confident, right? back yourself. You've got to, you've got to back yourself. And it's true. Well, that seems a really great place to wind this up. So Sophie, look, thank you for being such a fantastic guest and always take notes and wishing you best with um, everything going forward. Thank you. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your, your take on the Sophie bilateral? I love talking to Sophie. I a, her writing is beautiful, so it yeah. was great to get some insight on, her, on how she kind of crafts those pieces. But also she was very honest about having kids and being a freelancer and how you make that work, and I thought that was really refreshing. Definitely a lot of real talk in that uh-huh. interview. Um, and yeah, I'm also a huge admirer of her, of her work, and um, we, we were both conscious just how quickly the interview went, actually. Mm, flew by. Uh, not always the case on the podcast. Um, but we... Uh, <laughs> I could have talked to her for hours. <laughs> now people are going to go back and listen and be like, oh, this one drags. <laughs> um, I could have talked to her for hours about the intricacies of uh, managing editors mm. and being managed by them and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And we've had listeners email us and say they want to hear more from freelance writers. So we're glad to tick that box for people. Indeed we are. This is also now where we uh, ask you bluntly for money, as we've decided to do. So uh, we should explain that the podcast has a crowdfunder on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash always take notes. Um, and what do you get, Rachel, if you contribute? You get a bundle of pitches to clarify story pitches, not other varieties like tent pitches. Simon thought we should clear up F- that. Football pitches. Football pitches. Pictures. Anyway, you get a bundle of story pitches. Um, to various different outlets so it gives you a bit of a sense of how you can craft pitches in different ways and still be successful Uh, and the money you give goes to paying our producer and our social media editor and to buying a swanky audio kit so it's all for a good cause anyway this has been Always Take Notes hosted by me Simon Aikham and me Rachel Lloyd our producer is Nicola Keane our social media is by Owen Redahan our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by Jess Danheiser if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on the aforementioned Patreon at Always Take Notes, and if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye. <laughs>